that if we're in the middle of a storm, no matter what's happening, and many are in the middle of those storms today, that we raise that hallelujah, we praise you and worship you. And as we focus on you, that storm all of a sudden becomes nothing in the eyes of the fact that heaven's fighting for us, that Jesus, you are here in a special way. And I pray today that you will build our faith, that you would build our confidence in that fight that you fight for us. And that, God, you would give us faith and understanding. I pray that we today, Lord, would be changed because we're here today. As we worship you, we raise those hallelujahs, praising God, praising the Lord. And pray now, Lord, that you'll take the living word of God and that you would minister life, change our lives today in Jesus' name. Amen. As your seated children can be dismissed to Kids Church. By the way, we're, when, we, when it comes to worship, we're, we're going to change it up once in a while. Sometimes we'll have acoustic, which was today. And part of, that, part of that reason is that you notice that Scott can play drums and sing at the same time. And he can play guitar and sing at the same time. Uh, we still have to see if he can do all three at the same time. We're not sure yet. <laughs> Very gifted. We thank you. Thank you, Scott, for your willingness to do all kinds of things. He, he was a music major. He can do all kinds of things. So we're just grateful for that. There's a story told of an old country boy who was hired for a salesman job at a city department store. It was one of those massive stores that have, has every department imaginable. In fact, it was one of the biggest stores you've probably ever seen. You can just get anything at this store. And the boss said to this young boy, you can start tomorrow, Friday morning, and I'll come and see you when we close up. When the boss saw the young man the next day at closing time, he saw him shaking hands with a beaming customer. After they parted, he walked over to the young man and asked, well, how many sales did you make today? He said, that was the only one. He said, the only one, said the boss. Most of my staff make 20 to 30 sales a day. You're going to have to do better than that. By the way, how much was the sale worth? Oh, it was $227,340 and change, said the young man. The boss paused for a moment, blinked a few times and said, how, how did you manage that? He said, well, he came in this morning and I sold him a small fish hook. Then I sold him a medium hook, then a really large hook. Then I sold him a small fishing line and a medium one, and then a big one. Then I sold him a spear gun, a wetsuit, scuba gear, nets, chum, and coolers. I asked him where he was going fishing, and he said down the coast. We decided he'd probably need a new boat. So I took him down to the boat department and sold him that new 20-foot schooner with the twin engines. Then he said that his Volkswagen probably wouldn't be able to pull it. So I took him to the car department and sold him the new deluxe cruiser with a winch, storage rack, rust proofing, and a built-in refrigerator. Oh, and floor mats. The boss took two steps back and asked in astonishment, you sold all that to a guy who came in for a fish hook? 
No, said the salesman. He came in to buy a blanket. He said, a blanket? He said, yeah, an extra blanket for the couch. He just had a fight with his wife. I said, well, since your weekend's ruined, you might as well go fishing. <laughs> now, that's, that's, an, that's a real salesman. We would probably put that guy on the salesman of a stereotype of the ultimate. Well, we use a lot of terms to describe people. And those terms can be called stereotypes. And some of them are accurate, some are inaccurate. Some are just contradictory. And many times those descriptive terms describe someone's character, who they are, or, or what they're like. My older brother and I spent our junior high years in a town called Fairbow, Minnesota, not too far from here, south of Minneapolis. And we were in junior high then, and junior high was tough. How many of you had tough junior high years? How many of you are still in junior high? Okay. T junior high can be tough. Our school was particularly rough because we had a lot of groups and gangs that were vying for control outside of the classroom. Now, our father was a pastor, and somehow everyone in town knew, and school knew, that we were PKs, we were pastor's kids. Some of you have dealt with that. How many of you have been PKs? I, know, I see that hand. Yeah, there we go. Being a pastor's kid. And they had a stereotypical view of pastor's kids. They just said, that must be what a pastor's kid's like. Well, one day after school, a group of three bullies cornered my older brother. They were going to take his money. And a fourth boy came to his, his rescue and said, you better leave him alone. His dad's a priest, and he'll pray for you. Well, he wasn't a priest. You know, think father, priest. I don't know what he was thinking. He was a pastor, whatever. But it worked. And they, they did leave him alone after that. Stereotypes. We, we have preconceived notions or preconceived ideas. We all have them. And we also have stereotypes or preconceived notions about historical figures, particularly Bible characters. All of the Bible characters appear to us as bigger than life, spiritual giants, men and women of great faith. And our challenge is to get past our notions and stereotypes and see them as real human beings and try to identify with them and really try to walk in their shoes. Well, we return to Genesis today. This is us, the beginning. We've been studying a lot about a man named Abram. Eventually, he'll be Abraham. And he appears on the scene as a man of great faith. And then he experiences failure or unfaith, as we studied before. And I want us to rejoin the story today in Genesis 13 to see what we can learn about Abram's character and about Abram's life journey. Let's turn to Genesis 13. It's in, on page 9 in the, rack in the uh, Bible in the rack in front of you. And uh, we'll start with verse 1 of Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. 
So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived on the, in the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from them, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. What kind of man? What kind of man was Abram? What, what can we learn about Abram today? Let's look at the character of Abram. Number one, Abram was wealthy. He was wealthy. He handled riches well. He handled riches well. He was a man of great faith, but he was also a man of great wealth. Now, we typically don't think those go together. God had blessed Abram, and he had become very, very wealthy. Now, wait a minute. When, when I think of men of God, I don't know if you think about this. Don't, don't we think about people who are poor, they, they give everything away, they live in a monastery somewhere? Or, or people who have nothing, so they have to have great faith that God will take care of them. And yes, that, that does require faith, but that's not all. That's kind of a stereotype that, that we live with at times. Equating spirituality with poverty. Is that what the Bible teaches? That's, that's a question. I find it ironic that the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, John Wesley, the Wesleyan Church was named after him. John Wesley, our namesake, tried very hard to live a simple and non-materialistic and poor life. But John Wesley was also not only a preacher and church planter, he was also a writer. And he wrote a lot of tracts and pamphlets and books and booklets. And literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of people bought these writings. And John Wesley, when he noted this fact, says that because of my writings, he says, and I quote, I accidentally got rich. I accidentally got rich. Now, he, he didn't accidentally get rich. God blessed him on purpose. Let me just say that. God blessed John Wesley on purpose. God, God does that. So whether a person's rich or poor, God wants us to handle our material possessions wisely, or our wealth especially. And to do so, if we want to, if we want to handle our wealth wisely, there are some principles of wealth that I want to talk about. Just very briefly, first of all, principles of wealth. For letter A, wealth comes from God. Wealth comes from God. Yes, we work hard, we earn our money, we save and we invest, but ultimately Abram's wealth and our wealth, it, it comes from God. Bottom line, comes from God. All gifts come from God, and it's important to recognize God as the source of our blessings. And no one should ever apologize for God's blessings, ever. 
We should never apologize for that. We don't accidentally become rich. God makes us rich on purpose. Wealth. Principle number two, we are stewards of wealth. We are stewards of wealth. What does that mean? A steward is someone who manages the assets of someone else. Managing the true owners of that, of that wealth, of that asset. means, of course, that God owns everything. We looked at this the last couple of weeks. God owns everything. And when he gives us something material, which all of us have something material, whether it's money and land, houses, cars, whatever it might be, or spiritual, if he's given you spiritual gift, abilities, blessings, whatever we have, it's coming from God. And we are to manage what God has given us wisely. And wealth is a circumstance that can test our character. It can test our character. How did Abram handle his wealth? Did he abuse it? Did he use it for selfish gain? That's the question. And the question is, how do we, how do we handle what God has given us? Do we see it as a gift from God to be handled wisely? I have observed that many people who are the least attached to money seem to have the most. And those most attached to the money sometimes have the least. That's not because the rich have everything they want, because we've discovered that we always want more. Okay, There's, we never have quite enough. We always want more. No person has had everything they wanted. But God knows our character and how we will handle the gifts that he's given us, how we will handle wealth. And if we don't have the character to handle wealth, maybe he doesn't want to give it to us. So what kind of man was Abram? God entrusted much to him because his character was free from the love of money. Now be careful, we need to be careful, stereotypes here again, that we don't draw conclusions about a person's character based on externals. Wealth or no wealth, whatever, that's stereotypes. The Bible just says, if your riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. In other words, don't let that be the focus because they came from God and they are gifts from God. We're just managers, we just manage what God has given. What kind of man? Thirdly, principle number three, how we handle material, the material indicates our spiritual state. How we handle material indicates our spiritual state. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul writes, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There's a principle there called contentment. Contentment. So difficult for us to be content. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. He's learned the secret of being at peace with whatever circumstance, whether in plenty or whether in need. He can say this because his peace of mind does not depend on his material circumstances. The question is, can we say that? Can we be content in any and all circumstance? Principle number four, wealth is relative. Wealth is relative. Doesn't mean, relative, doesn't mean your relatives have wealth. It means wealth is, is relative comparably. Judy and I were able to go to Puerto to Vallarta, Mexico for one of our wedding anniversaries. I think it was our 25th. And we spent most of our time at the resort that we were part of 
on the beach. But one day we, we went into town to eat at a restaurant and to kind of walk through this, this town of Puerto Vallarta. And then when you, when you cross a certain part, uh, there's a river and you cross over into the poor section, uh, Puerto Vallarta. And, and there's a really interesting, fascinating open market where people are selling all kinds of things you can imagine. And we went to this open market. We, we purchased a couple of items. You know, it's very inexpensive for us to buy. And in that environment, as we looked around at the people, we felt that we were very wealthy. And, and understanding back then, the average wage of one of those Mexican people was like $800 a year. $800 a year. And we said, man, we, we are really wealthy. In many countries, having a rug on the floor means you're wealthy. Of course, in America, it's wall-to-wall -wall carpet. It's standard. Running water, hot water, central heating, central air conditioning, nice lawn, at least one or two cars. Compared to 95% of the world's populations, Americans are filthy rich. We are just really rich. Very rich. When we lived in North Dakota growing up, we had a little terrier dog named Chisai. He's a little dog. And he was pretty much my responsibility. So I, I taught him tricks. It was, it was my job to teach him tricks. And one of the tricks I taught him was how to play the piano. He would follow the cookie or the treat up onto the piano bench and onto the keys. And before long, you'd say, Chisai, go play the piano. And he'd run up, run on, the, run on the keys and play the tune and then come back down. And there wasn't a lot of rhythm to the tune, but it was, you know, it was pretty good for a dog. And so, and, and a lot of times we would have people over and if we were having cookies and ice cream or something, the dog wanted a treat, we'd be sitting there having, having refreshments and all of a sudden the dog go up and run on the piano. And they go, what, what is that? So, well, well, he likes to play the piano and get a treat. Okay, that was his incentive. Well, we had two pianos at that point, one in the living room and one in the kitchen. We were storing one in the kitchen. And we had some Japanese exchange students visiting. And after dinner that we had together, we had Chisai perform on the piano. And it happened to be he ran on the, and played on the kitchen piano. And of course, they were just enthralled with this piano playing dog. It was amazing. And my brother convinced them somehow that, that we had two pianos because the one in the living room was for people and this one was for our dog. <laughs> and I had to say, no, Tim, no, no, Tim, don't, don't tell him. They said, ah, so deska. You know, if, you, if you've ever heard them. So anyway, but... They thought, wow, these extravagant Americans have a piano for themselves and one for the dog. You know, that was their idea. I, I had to convince them differently. Now, of course, now today we have three pianos. We have one in California, one in Washington, and one in Wisconsin. And no dog, just so you know. That's where we're at today. But we in America are, are blessed. When we look at what we have, we are blessed. But we must remember that it's God who blessed us in America. Wealth comes from God. So we, we are just stewards, not the owners. The question is, what do we do with the wealth that comes from God? Abram was wealthy. We are wealthy. What do we do with our wealth? While Abram was wealthy, he wasn't immune from problems. In fact, his wealth and Lot's wealth were the cause of the problem that we read about. Okay? We read about this problem that came up. So what kind of man was Abram? They came into this problem. Secondly, Abram, not only was he a wealthy man who handled finances well, he was also a peacemaker, a peacemaker. He handled conflict well. He handled conflict well. In verse 7, it says there arose a conflict, a dispute, quarreling between Abram's employees and Lot's employees. 
The paradox is that God's blessing on Abram and Lot is what created the problem. And through all these blessings, God sends conflict and turmoil. Has God ever sent you conflict and turmoil through his blessings? How many of you have kids? Okay, just checking. Just checking. Conflict. Is, is it ease and comfort only, harmony? No, it's a test of faith. Maybe you, you work with a business and the business grew and, and you had conflict and turmoil. Whatever the situation, things get complicated. God's blessings can actually test our faith, and that's okay. That's okay. There was an elderly man who later on in life, he was retired, and he received what to him was a large sum of money. In fact, it was enough money to last him the rest of his life. And life for him all of a sudden got really complicated. And he was afraid he was going to lose it. He was afraid someone would steal it. He didn't worry before because he didn't have any money. Now he had money. See, all of a sudden, God's blessings on him made life complicated. Sometimes God's outpouring of blessings unsettles us or tests our faith in a new way. And we see conflict or, or strife. So what, do, what does Abram do? What can we learn about Abram in this situation? What does Abram do? He took the initiative and directly addressed the issues. In verse, verses 8 and 9, says, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company, I'll go to the left, you go to the right, whatever that might be. We find that Abram was a peacemaker. Abram was a peacemaker. Now, a peacemaker is not someone who, who passively withdraws from conflict. Okay? That's a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is someone who enters directly into the fray. Sometimes we think of good Christians who love peace as people who do everything they can to smooth things over, keep conflict at bay, keep everybody at peace and happy. We just want everybody to get along. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That means peacemakers are God-like or like God. But peacemakers love enough to confront. Now, I have, a, I have a, uh, a slide up here. I think it's up here. Peacemakers. Difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. Do we have that? We don't. Do we have it? Okay, it got, it got dropped. Okay, you're going to have to listen with your ears. Okay. Okay, a peace, let's talk about a peacekeeper. First of all, some people want to be peacekeepers. The goal is peace. But a peacekeeper follows the path of least resistance, practices appeasement, tries to survive hostilities. It, peacekeepers are more passive. They avoid confrontation. The purpose is to avoid discomfort. And peacekeepers will do anything to keep the peace. Okay? Peacekeepers. And some of us are just naturally peacekeepers. Keep everybody happy, keep the equilibrium. Now, a peacemaker is different. The goal is the same, peace, peace. But they follow the path of change or resistance. They actually practice confrontation because they know without confronting the issue, you don't really get peace. They actually do try to end hostilities, but instead of being passive, they're active. They confront with a purpose. The purpose is to bring reconciliation. And peacemakers will do anything they can to bring reconciliation between parties. 
Peacemakers love enough to confront conflict. A peacemaker is willing to be uncomfortable. Peacemakers are willing to take the initiative for one reason, to bring reconciliation. And I can guarantee you that if we took a poll this morning, we'd be about 50% peacekeepers and 50% peacemakers. And God has called, but God has called us all to be in that category, naturally, supernaturally, to be peacemakers. Peacemaking and reconciliation are central to God's character. It's revealed in Jesus. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus confronted sin. Now, most of, most of the sinners that he confronted were the religious people. You know, he really con confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and Pharisees. He also confronted the unbelief of his disciples. He said, where's your faith? Where's your faith? He confronted unbelief in his disciples. And, then, and he also confronted sin and sinners. The, the woman caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. To Zacchaeus, a, the rich tax collector, he said, go sin. He, basically, he confronted sin. Jesus actually had a very confrontational approach to sin. And then he forgave and he made peace, paid the sacrifice to reconcile people to God. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about his ministry and mission and our mission. It says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Ah, oh, that's, that's, our, that's our job too. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, the message of Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our role of reconciling and our role of bringing reconciliation and giving us the message of reconciliation. Peacemakers, we are here to give people an opportunity to have peace with God. Many times when I've been at the bedside of someone who's on their way into eternity and I wasn't sure where they are, or even if I was, my question would be, do you know that you have peace with God. Do you know you have peace with God? And if they say no, it's, let me give you the message of peace with God. That's part of peacemaking. Peace with God. Jesus reconciled us to God. And Jesus gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Abram was a peacemaker, something we can learn. Thirdly, Abram was unselfish. Unselfish. He handled relationships well, Abram did not stop at peacemaking. He went on and gave up his rights. Now, that's not something we do very well. Gave up his rights. That's what Jesus did. You know, Abram was older. He was Lot's uncle. He had the right to choose which way and which part of the land he was going to have. But he gave up that right because he was unselfish. And interestingly, it doesn't say that Lot appreciated it. <laughs> he probably said, this guy is that dumb. Gives me first choice. I'll, I'll take it. And Calvin wrote this. Calvin said, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. But that's getting ahead of the story. That'll be next. Verse 10 casts a shadow over that. But Abram was unselfish. He wasn't possessive. He chose God's best. Now, we're reared in America. 
where we have certain unalienable rights, inalienable rights. We like to hold on to our rights. We, we hear in the news all the time about rights. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right to bear arms, privacy, respect, dignity, self-fulfillment. And sometimes, since we're so much into this rights culture, we don't resolve conflicts because we hang on to our rights. In marriage, I've got my rights. In family, I have my rights. Friends. So we never reconcile, never give in, never forgive. We just harden our hearts and hang on to our rights. What kind of man was Abram? He was unselfish. He didn't hang on to his rights. He gave it up willingly. And what were the results? God blessed them even more. It's amazing. Amazing. Fourth, Abram was a worshiper. In verse 4, said, There Abram called on the name of the Lord. These words depict a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of submission to God. He worshiped God. He placed worth on God. He placed on God the true heights where he ought to be. He had a lifestyle of walking with God. God was the most important thing, most important relationship, the most important aspect of his life. There was a constant reminder of how powerful, mighty, righteous, just, true, faithful, and loving God was. And out of that worship, Abraham had faith. Faith grows out of worship. You know, when we talk about coming in and, and worshiping, no matter what we've brought in with us, no matter what circumstance we're in, when we worship God, we begin to raise his worth, raise his value. We begin to put him up where, in our minds, we begin to understand how incredible he is. And you know what happens? Our faith grows. Our faith just begins to grow. If you can do, once in a while, go out, go out to nature. Many of you like the outdoors. Not when it's cold, snowy. Well, some of you do. But, but you go, go outdoors and just sit and, 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 and look at trees and sky and grass. And uh, we have birds and we have wild turkeys and we have, we have all kinds of things behind our place. Turkeys are the oddest things, those wild turkeys. It's just it's kind of fun. But you look at all the creation, all the different colors. Our neighbor put up a bird feeder, so we, we look at the bird feeder, look at all the different colors and different designs of birds, and I'm going, man, who would think of all that stuff? Oh, God did that. You start looking at the God who cares about all of this stuff and designed all of this, and your faith begins to grow because he did that. And you're more valuable than any sparrow or any bird or any wild turkey, aren't you glad? It's just amazing how valuable. And you begin to grow in your faith and worship God. Worship God for the things he has done and who he is. It's amazing. We're really busy, and we don't have time to do that. But, man, we need to do that. And when we come in here, my prayer every Sunday morning is that we would leave behind all the distractions and begin to worship and see who God is. All the songs we do are about the the character qualities, singing to God, who is this Jesus, the Holy Spirit. It's all about that because we're here to focus on him. And you know what? Your faith will be built. Your confidence will be built. That's what happens. Faith grows. Faith grows out of worship. And the result of that, Abram was blessed. Verses 14 to 17, it talks about he said, God said, lift up your eyes from where you are. Look to the north, south, east, and west, all the land. He says, I've given it to you forever. When we went to Israel, 
One of the first places our guide took us was this spot, where they think that Abram pitched his tent. It's amazing. You know, we're out in the middle. There's this big hill, and there's a tent up there. And, and our guide, who's almost a, he's like a Bible lecturer. He's a, like a professor. And he said, I want you to come up here, and I want you to look to the north. And we did. We, looked the, we could see Mount Hermon. You can see the mountains. Look to the west. You could see the Mediterranean. It was a little cloudy, but the Mediterranean. Look looked east and south. You could see the Dead Sea. That's where Abram was. And, and God said to Abram, it's all yours, as far as you can see. You, you and your descendants are going to be in possession of all of this. The Transjordan, Mount Hermon, the Dead Sea. Everything you see, I'll give you. And when God, when we walk with God, he takes us to the top of our world, wherever that is, and he says to you, everything you've ever wanted, everything you can see, I'll give it to you. When he's number one, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Possession. Amazing. He wants to bless us. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. And when God promised Abraham descendants so numerous, said there will be so many people, you want, it's like the sands of the sea or the dust. If you could count that, you would know that. His descendants were so numerous that they would not be able to be counted. And that, in that number, it includes you. That's you. you. You're part of that, the descendants of Abraham, the, the journey of faith. We end up today, how, however many years later, it's you, it's me. We are those descendants, those spiritual descendants. The New Testament sees believing Gentiles as well as faithful Jews counted as Abram's descendants. That's us. We're recipients of that promise. That's why this says, this is us, the beginning. This is about us too. So what kind of man, what kind of woman is God calling you to be? One who handles God's blessings well? One who handles conflicts well? One who handles relationships well? One who worships God well? And all of those will be truly blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you Give us all the truth. We thank you, Lord, that, that you don't gloss over anything. And I just pray that you would challenge us again as we look at these parts of, of Genesis, that we would see how we fit into the story, that we are part of that story, part of that promise. Israel is in the land, and they occupy Israel. But you, God, have included us in the story. And I pray, God, that you would help us to understand in just a small way how we fit in the story. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?